A reading from the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of the Lord. And as the kids are all heading out, um, I have the pleasure of introducing an old friend of mine. Um, and I mean that because I've known him for a long time. Thank you for clarifying. Um, Rick Beckwith is the, is the senior regional director for Young Life in the metro D.C. area. But I knew Rick first because when I was in high school, my Young Life here at Madison was tied to Oakton's for a couple of years. And Rick had been the Young Life leader um, on staff at Oakton for years. And it was actually, Rick was one of those guys who I loved because he challenged me. Um, he was great with proclaiming the gospel very clearly. Um, when, uh, when I was in, high, in college, first starting to work as a volunteer Young Life leader, I went and talked to Rick, and he doesn't remember this, but I asked for some wisdom on how to, to start Young Life in a school that didn't have it. He said, go out there, get to know kids' names, and if you ever get a chance to play sports with them, beat them and beat them soundly when you're playing with them. <laughs> and I, I took that to heart. I may or may not have broken a few things in the process. Um, but one of the things I've learned greatly from Rick and I've appreciated is his his continual long ministry in the same place. For years, he was at Oakton High School, year after year after year. And I saw friends of mine who had older siblings and younger siblings who came through his work at Oakton High School. And I said, if I ever have a chance to be in ministry, which I felt called to do, I want to do it like Rick. I want to do it for a long time in the same place and watch God build in that process. So I'm very grateful for your example, for your ministry through the years, through the work that you do with Young Life. And let me pray with you before you preach for us. Thanks, brother. God Almighty, I thank you for Rick and his ministry with Young Life and the number of kids and lives that he has touched, the dozens and dozens who have gone into ministry themselves because of Rick's leadership and impact on their lives. I pray that you would be with us now and him as he speaks, that the words that you have prepared for him would be the words that we need to hear this day. And by your spirit, bring life to us who need life. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a treat to be with you all. Thanks for getting up and coming to church on the first official Sunday of summer. That's uh, remarkable. Give yourself a gold star. And it's fun for me to be with so many familiar faces that I've known and loved through the years. And it's great to be with Johnny. As you said, it's a fun history uh, being his, one of his young life leaders when he was in high school right here at James Madison walking these halls. It's, uh, I was here on June 1st for the launch of the Gospel Driven Series this summer. 
and which I love, by the way. I've followed the Facebook posts and, and things these last couple of weeks. But I also heard uh, something Johnny said in, in an attempt to set me up to be so well-received today. He made the comment, yes, I remember sitting in Young Life Club in high school and being totally bored when my leaders would share those gospel stories. All I could fathom is he's referring to Will Cravers or one of the other less gifted communicators that was on the team. And since Will will be here next week, you can be sure I told you that. Actually, it was really a reflection, I think, of where Johnny was spiritually at a remarkable young age. He, uh, he knew the Lord well as a teenager. He had great, profound depth in his life. And uh, he had a passion for his friends coming to know the Jesus that he had come to know so well. And that's the only reason he was involved in Young Life. It was a safe platform to invite friends of his to come and to hear about the Lord. So while Johnny was ready to eat spiritual steak, most of his friends were still drinking chocolate milk through their nose in a straw. So there was really a profound difference there. And if you've never seen that picture, you've never counseled on a week of camp with teenagers, I guess. I do like to consider myself um, a practical theologian. I did go to seminary, so I'm allowed to say that word. And uh, while I don't take people to the depths that Johnny does, I, I love to take the, uh, the, the truths of God that we know in our minds and help us apply them to our hands and our feet. And that's my prayer for us today. So allow me to say a prayer for all of us. Lord, thank you for this day, the day that you've made. I pray this wouldn't be another day where we check the boxes and it feels status quo, but I pray that it would be a day where we take steps of greater faith to walk with you, to be dependent upon you, and to watch you move and work in our midst. So, Lord, give us ears to hear today as we proclaim your word and, uh, and ponder the marvels of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, it was in 1982 that I was asked to move to Northern Virginia to start Young Life in what's called Northwest Fairfax. So I got to start the club here at Madison and at Oakton High Schools, and Johnny said I had a fun run there for a number of years. And uh, I want to tell you a story about one student uh, who was an Oakton student, and I share this with you for two reasons. One is to give you a feel for what we do in Young Life, for those who don't know, but more importantly, I share it as an illustration for the topic today, what is an appropriate response to Jesus' invitation? So let me introduce you to Mark. Mark was coming into his senior year, and Mark spent all of his days bound to a wheelchair due to spinal bifida. And uh, at the beginning of his senior year, some of the campaigner group at Oakton, which is the kids like Johnny who were in Bible study and knew the Lord and had a vision for reaching their friends, they decided they wanted to love Mark in a different way because he was somewhat of an outcast at the school. So they built a friendship with Mark, and they began going to Mark's house every Wednesday night and driving him to club, which was quite an undertaking because he had one of those real heavy motorized wheelchairs. So it took two of them to lift it. They had to get a van each week. But Mark never missed Young Life his entire senior year, and he loved it, and we loved him. Well, in the spring, we began promoting our summer camp trip. That year, we were going to go to a place called Saranac, which is Saranac Lake in upstate New York. Some of you have been there. And uh, it's in the high peaks of the Adirondack Mountains. And I saw that Mark, come about April, had signed up for the trip. And I thought, this is great. Mark will be with us. He's a fixture in our club. He should be there. And as we got closer to camp, 
I thought more about it and said, golly day, this is going to be a tough place for Mark to navigate because Saranac's built on this hill, and at that time it was just sort of these dirt and root-rutted paths going down to the lake, and it's water sports oriented. You know, people are going to be water skiing and, and canoeing and parasailing and all these things. I was thinking, oh, I hope Mark will enjoy it, but I'm sure we will. So we get to camp, and Mark's having a great time, and the guys in our cabin are caring for Mark like crazy. And all of a sudden, I realized we woke up the third day of camp, and I knew what was going to happen. They were going to, unbeknownst to the kids, bring school buses in after breakfast to pick us all up and take us on a mountain climb. We were going to climb Mount Ampersand, which had had a burned top. So it was this beautiful rocky top with great views, but it's a hard climb. So I came into my guys before breakfast and I said, hey guys, if any of you have stationery or some books with you, maybe you could leave them with Mark because he's going to have a little bit of a long day. And they looked at me like, why? What's going on? I said, well, we're going to be climbing a mountain today. And so obviously, you know, Mark can't come. And they looked at me like I had three heads and said, Rick, Mark's part of the team. He's going to the top. I said, no, no, you don't understand. This, this isn't a walk up a hill. This is a mountain. And, and it's going to take us two to three hours to get up this thing. And there's places where we have to pull ourselves over small rocky cliffs. And I, I, I don't see how it's going to work, fellas. He says, Rick, Mark's part of the team. He's going to the top. So being a young leader, I, uh, I let my students prevail. And we snuck Mark onto the back of the bus through the emergency exit without telling the head leader. And they also stole from the boathouse an old World War II roll-up canvas stretcher that they have there in case there's ever a back or neck injury, and they threw that on the back of the bus. So we take the half-hour ride over to Mount Ampersand. As we're getting off the bus, the head leaders uh, put a number on every kid's hand, so we'll come home with the same number we leave. So you you parents can trust young life leaders. They do a great job. So we're the last ones to get off the bus. And the head leader looks at me, as if to say, you complete moron, what are you thinking bringing this guy up this mountain? So we put Mark on the stretcher and we begin to carry him, you know, every four of us, one on each end of the pallet, and, uh, and he gets heavy quick. And uh, we, we're just walking into the mountain and we've already dropped him twice. And, and there's 300 kids on this walk and every one of the 300 took a turn at some point carrying one side of this stretcher that Mark was on. And we dumped him in a couple creek beds. He had cuts all over his legs. But after about two or three hours, we arrived on top of the mountain. Kyle, throw that picture up there, will you? And we held Mark over our heads, and he saw a 360-degree view of the High Peaks region all the way looking into Canada. And I looked up at Mark, and he had tears streaming down his face. I said, Mark, what are you feeling right now? And he said, I've never felt love like this before in my life. And that night when we got back to our cabin time, we processed that. We were processing the gospel story that's been woven through the week. And Mark came to understand that it wasn't just the love of his friends that he felt. It was the love of Jesus working through his friends. And he knew he had to respond. What would a responsible or appropriate response to that kind of love be for Mark? Mark surrendered that night all that he knew of himself to all that he knew of Jesus Christ, which was not that much, and made a commitment to follow him for the rest of his life. And nothing else would have made much sense to Mark. I don't know about you all, but I'm really glad that we live in a country 
where we don't have some dictator telling us what religion we have to believe. The gospel hasn't been forced upon you or me. I'm also thankful that I'm not a robot who was programmed by somebody to walk in lockstep with all that God wants me to do. I'm thankful that the gospel came to me as a free gift where I was lost, but by the grace of Christ, I'm offered a chance to be redeemed, to be justified once again, and to enter in that relationship. But it comes as an invitation, not something that's forced upon us. And our response to that invitation will affect every aspect of our lives here on earth, and it's going to affect our eternity. So no decision we make is ever more important. So I'd like to pose this question to us this morning as we walk through this message. What has your response been to Jesus' invitation? I don't mean just in the past. How about this week? It's a living, active relationship. And it's worth evaluating periodically as we go. You know, I grew up in a home where I was an only child in Montgomery County, Maryland. So Christmases were great at my house. Oh, more presents for me. Thank you very much. And my parents took, us to, took me to church uh, on a regular basis. <clears throat> and, and I would describe a church in today's language as being fairly liberal. We didn't use that term back then. It was sort of a social gospel church back then where the church was really focused on caring for the needs of people in the community. But I never heard much talk of having a relationship with Jesus or salvation or anything along those lines until my junior year of high school when I went on my first Young Life weekend camp. And I heard the speaker there talk about this problem that we have called sin where we've turned our backs on God and are kind of doing our own thing and going our own way and leaving God out. And the consequences of that had set up a wall between us and God that we couldn't break down. And he described what Jesus did by living a perfect life and paying the penalty for our sins so that once again that relationship could be restored. And and then I heard these words that have affected me ever since. If you were the only one on earth, that story would not have changed. Jesus Christ would have died for you. And that weekend, I went from being a dutiful believer in Jesus Christ to a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ. And there's just a vast difference. When we understand our depravity and how desperately lost we are apart from God, and then we're given the chance to be restored to that relationship What response, other than complete surrender of our lives, would be appropriate? So we gladly surrender our families, our kids, our work, our leisure, our friendships. Everything is given to God, to his honor. I find it interesting that in the four Gospels, there's one account where Jesus is speaking with a Pharisee, and he says that to experience the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. And we all have heard the phrase born again. There's movements about that and stuff, but Jesus has said it one time, as far as I know. But did you know that over 80 times in the four Gospels, Jesus invites his listeners to come follow me. Now, if I were to invite you all, 
for the next 10 minutes to follow me out this door into the parking lot for a little exercise I have for you, you would have to uh, evaluate a few things. First of all, do I trust this guy to follow him? He's a young life leader, so this is probably just a skit because that's all they do, so I may or may not be into that today. Or if you'd worked real hard on your hair this morning and know it's hot and humid outside, this could make for a bad hair day, so I'm not sure I'm going to follow. You, you go play your game and then come back. That would be great. Or maybe you would choose to follow if you agreed with what we were doing, but if you didn't, you would do your own thing. But tell me this. Could you with integrity say yes to following me outside and remain in your seat after I leave the door? No. Because follow is an action verb. It's not passive. It has much less to do with our intellect and what we decide in our minds and much more to do with what we do with our feet and the actions that follow. It demands practical theology. I'd like to put up the end of the epistle that we read this morning. This is Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20. I want to invite you to stand to read these with me, and I want us to read together verse 20, because I'm going to offer that to you. I remember Johnny sharing at the beginning of the summer that there might be some memory verses that would be good to keep these themes, doctrinal themes in our minds, and I'm going to suggest Galatians 2.20 for us this week. So I'm going to read verse 19, and then you join me when we get to verse 20. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Altogether... I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. How about one more time? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you. Have a seat. I hope Galatians 2.20 is a declaration of our pledge to be sold out followers of Jesus Christ. Now tell me this. Do you get the impression from Paul's words that following Christ is a part-time endeavor? Or one more good thing to add to our already busy lives? One more drawer to add to the chest of drawers that make up the total of who we are? That's not what I hear. His words are emphatic. And I hear his exhorting us to a standard beyond what I just described. Listen to his words again. I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live except For Christ who is alive in me. Philippians 1, Paul continues with this theme. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He is everything to me. Do you sense the gratitude Paul has for the gift, the invitation that he was offered? It cost Jesus everything to afford Paul that opportunity, the opportunity that we all seek in life to be justified, just as if we had never sinned, to be restored to the relationship that God had intended at the point of our creation. Paul responded with all that he was, a life for a life.
and nothing else would have seemed appropriate to him. What can we do deduce Paul would say in response to our question today? What is an appropriate response to Jesus' invitation? Do you think he'd say that we should give him 90 minutes of worship on Sundays and not think about him much more during the week? Sunday worship is a great thing, but is it the only thing? Would he say that we should pause to remember him before we pray and eat our meals, but not think about it much during the rest of the day? Praying before we eat is a great thing, but is it the heart of the matter? Would he say that we should attend small group Bible studies and enjoy the new found wisdom and knowledge of God that awaits us in the scriptures, but not bother to put into practice what we have heard? Bible study is a great thing. Is it, an, is it the only thing? Let me share a parallel passage to Galatians 2.20. It's John 1.12, and it says this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Greek word used for believe here is pistuyo. And the definition of it is to put one's trust in or commit to. And it's a synonym to the root word for the word faith in Galatians 2.20. The life I live by faith in Christ. And the form of this word believe here does not refer to an intellectual acceptance of an idea like I believe the sun will come up tomorrow but apart from packing my sunglasses, it's not going to change how I live very much. It's, it's not that kind of belief. It's a belief that would be so central in our lives that would move us to action with our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. It would be a belief that overcomes all others and bases, it gives us an identity based on that belief. It'd be the paramount of our existence. It's hard to illustrate in human terms, and, and this will be a weak one, but the way I think of it is this. I inherited from my mother uh, some sort of an allergy to garlic. I love to eat it, but when I, once it's ingested, it begins to eke out every skin cell on my body, and I start to reek of garlic for 24 hours. I have to shower off the next morning and scrub my skin to get the garlic off. That's a very unattractive picture of what could be beautiful when we think of ingesting Jesus Christ, the gospel, into our hearts and allowing the beautiful aroma of Jesus to eke out our every pore and be a fragrance to those around us. In this context, it is our belief that would cause us to abandon all else for the sake of knowing Jesus kind of like the merchant in that parable in Matthew 13 who was on a quest to find the perfect pearl. And when he finds that pearl of great price, he sells everything he has so he might cherish that pearl. That's an appropriate response to God's love, to his invitation. C.S. Lewis once said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true is of infinite importance. The only thing it can never be is moderately important. It's either true and everything or we're wasting our time. It's nothing. We know from Revelations 3 
that the worst state for a believer to find themselves in is lukewarm. Because if we're cold, we feel it. And we're going to take steps to get warm or to get hot again. And if we're hot, we're leaving a smoking trail in our week, in, in our wake of people who've been touched by our lives. We're running on all cylinders. We feel fulfilled. We're learning new things in Christ. But there's that, that place somewhere in between called lukewarm where we can slowly be lie to ourselves and think that we're doing fine. Maybe we're still going through the motions, but the fire has gone dim. And we're feeding and subsisting off the scraps when there's a wonderful banquet table that's been set for us to enjoy. Lukewarm believers don't have the passion enough to excite the people around them about Jesus, so evangelism ceases. I read an alarming statistic this spring that said that in the Church of America, only 1% of believers will ever share their faith with one person in the course of their lifetime. Do you think the Church in America has a problem with lukewarm? I want to reread the Old Testament passages I prepare to close. This is from Isaiah chapter 1. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. What's the point Isaiah is trying to make to us and to his original audience? God doesn't want us paying dutiful sacrifice to him or going through religious motions to try and please him. He invites us to follow him. And that means a dynamic, radical life that stands out in such beautiful contrast to the world we live in. It gives us a perspective that screams to lead our culture and not to follow behind it. I want you to do something that might uh, seem inappropriate in church, but I'd like it, if you have a cell phone that you take notes on, a smartphone, take it out for a second. If you have a pen, you can take that, and you might be able to write on your program. But I want to give you two questions to think about as an application that could actually influence your steps this week, and you're the only one who will come up with them. No one's going to tell you what to do. The founder of Young Life, Jim Rayburn, used to say that if we fail to challenge kids with something to believe and something to do each time we're with them, then we've wasted their time, and I don't want your time to be wasted this morning. So here's the first question. Consider for a moment how you've responded recently to Jesus' invitation to come follow him? Is it something that's active and growing and evolving all the time? Or is it something you need to look back on and say, oh yeah, I did that then, and now I'm at this place? Does our response honor the gift that we've been afforded? Write down just a word or two or a phrase that describes your response to that, and no one will ever see it but you. 
And then here's my second question. How might we this week keep Jesus Christ central in our focus for an entire week so that our faith impacts our thoughts, our words and conversations, and our actions as we work, as we play, that Jesus would be felt with us at every juncture. Jot down any ideas you have for how you might do that, and I'll share three tried and trusted ones uh, through the years uh, to give you more fuel for your fodder. But what are the first things that you think of for keeping Christ central in your focus? I'll give you about 20 seconds just to jot down an idea. Let me share three ideas that, that, have, um, that I've worked on and that people through the centuries, believers, have uh, instituted as disciplines in their life that have been helpful in this process. And the first is simply to begin each day with a few minutes meeting with the commander-in-chief. Some people call it a quiet time. But to take a few minutes to start your day reading the Scripture and in prayer asking God to be with you throughout the day, to guide you. Some of us do things for eight or ten hours a day that we may not think God cares much about. Maybe you work in a cubicle and you're focused on numbers or you're not going to interact much. It does, if it's exciting to you, if it's important to you, it's exciting to God. And Jesus wants to be in that with you. He has things to say to guide your attitude with it as well as your actions. So why would we want to be a follower of Jesus but go without him off to a big part of our day. It doesn't make sense to me. And then at the end of the day, and the goal is not to check the box and say you had a quiet time, but the, the, the goal is to begin the day with the Lord and stay with him throughout. And then at the end of the night, as you put your head on your pillow, you can do what St. Ignatius did and examine your day and say, where did I connect with Jesus today? Where did I miss him? Is there anything I need to confess? What can I thank him for? And fall asleep processing the day you've had with your personal Savior. The second tried and true idea is to practice the joy of thanksgiving and saying thank you to Jesus throughout the day. If, you're, if you make a, a yellow light without getting the camera to go off, thank the Lord. If you're on time to a meeting, thank the Lord. If you get an encouraging phone call from a friend, thank the Lord. If you get hard news, thank the Lord in faith that he is at work already on the challenge before you. But practice the discipline of saying thank you because it reminds us that we are in the presence, this intimate relationship with Jesus as we walk through the day. And then the third and final thing I would say is, and this is the hardest one, I would encourage you to tell one person a day something about the God you love and follow. Be proud to be a child of the King. And I don't mean having to preach at people. When you preach at people, you tell them what to believe. Sharing what Jesus is doing in your own life is never offensive. So to call a friend who's a believer and tell him something you learn in your quiet time affirms the importance of that relationship. To share with a non-believer that you're praying for them as they walk through a difficulty shares that you're a believer and extends the truth of Christ to them. 
We'll have a time in a moment where Matt will come up and lead us in a song of reflection. You can ponder this more, but as we close out, I'd like us to stand one more time and say our memory verse together, and that'll be our benediction and our, com- our commitment to the Lord, okay? So let's say this as a prayer, and I'll close us with amen. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is music to God's ears. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amen.